You're listening to Well, I Laughed, part one of Hometown Hijinks, Unsinkable. Oh, we're recording, recording? Exhausting. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm exhausting. Go ahead and get off hinge and give you my full attention. I'm gonna bring my chair up so that I look taller than you. I am increasingly jealous of that chair, by the way. <laughs> we'll get you one, babe. Thanks. Maybe, maybe sometime. Join the Patreon. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, also, now, oh, like I need my iPad, don't I? Eighty-five percent of you aren't gonna notice this, and I'm glad that Maya's out of frame, so it can just be you and I for a second. I have not been home since I left work this morning, which means. I hadn't realized how badly unshaved my head was, <laughs> and also did not give me the opportunity to strategically grab a hat or beanie like I have done in the past. So, if it makes you feel better, you can't really tell from the front. Think, but it's a party in the back. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead and cue up that Dolly Parton song, "Here I Am," because here I am <laughs> singing Sad podcast. That is not the song, but now it's the song. That's it goes, what here I, I am, eight head. more times. And then it goes, here I am. Did you see yes. her Thanksgiving yes. performance? Yes. My God. She is so hot. She's just amazing. For what, like 77 or something? <laughs> I don't look that good, and I'm 25. She's just up there kind of like waving her hands, singing, having a great little time. She was dressed as a Cowboys fan, so that's controversial, but... <laughs> The Denver Broncos keep winning. Did you know that? No. (laughs) They were like... I saw them win... Did they win on, like, the Sunday of Thanksgiving? Here's the thing. They've won every game for the last month and a half. Oh, really? They were, like, one and five or two and five, and now they're legitimately, like, six and five or seven and five. Oh, wow. Yeah. A couple weeks ago, I looked at some of my students who pulled up one of the scores, and I go, oh, wow, did the Broncos win two in a row? They're doing great. Anyways, Dolly Parton, National Treasure. She is a National Treasure, and I have a fun story for you. Mm. Um, This came out at Thanksgiving. Hold on, let me pull up my notes right quick. Excellent. (laughs) Um, This came up at Thanksgiving. We were watching Dolly Parton. This was even before Dolly Parton, like, came on stage. I don't even know what we were talking about. Somehow Dolly Parton comes up, and Casey has an older sister named Montana, and I love her dearly. Um, But... We were talking, and... Wow, I cannot get the story out of my face. (laughs) Out of her face? (laughs) Out of my face. Uh, Casey's mom was like, have I ever told you the Dolly Parton story? And I was like, what Dolly Parton story? What other famous person could you possibly know? Casey's family just, like, casually knows everyone. Everyone. Casey could go, like, I don't think my childhood neighbor... The inventor of toaster strudel <laughs> would be happy to hear about this. Like that is essentially all of Casey's entire existence. It's so funny though, because he's so like, I don't know, he doesn't want the attention, no. but then he's like, and I know Chuck Norris, and we were like, I'm sorry. Listen, I probably have to blur some of these lines, so all I'll say is this. Casey once handed me like $150 worth of pens, <laughs> like P-E-N-S pens, in a bag, and was like, it was a gift, and I don't have any more use for them. And you, teacher, you use writing utensil, <laughs> right? But here's the thing. I don't know, he'll listen to this, and then he'll realize mm. so many of them were so nice, I've had to like hide them. <laughs> 
and give them away kind of as like prizes. They are which, really nice. Well, now that means I'm like the old professor who like <laughs> shakes your hand at graduation. And then when you when I move my hand, there's like a nice pen. And then you like sign your mortgage with it a decade later. Like that's now who I am. That is the eighth dimension that that gift is in. I gave away a lot of like the highlighters, but. You need to buy like a little pen box. Yes! <laughs> Like yes. a styrofoam cutout for it to sit in. <laughs> oh, I think really they'd just funny. honestly be really impressed. if Even if it was just like kind of rolling around yes. in there in the shape of a jewelry box. Maybe over the next decade, I'll give every graduating senior from the program a pen. That seems like a great idea, honestly. It sounds like we started something here. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm looking at you and I'm remembering. I had a story. You were telling a yeah, story, I, yeah. I also realized that Have around I the same time. Have I gotten better at not interrupting you? No, but I am getting better at apologizing for it later. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Um, so Michelle is like, have I told you the Dolly Parton story? And I was like, no, what possible thing? And so she, I think this is like maybe right before Casey was born, but they are going up the escalator or sorry, elevator to like the Delta lounge at some airport. Okay. And the door opens. She's standing there with young Montana and it's Dolly Parton and her agent. <laughs> they're like, they're apologizing. They're like, oh, we'll get the next one. And they're like, okay. <laughs> and then the elevator door closes and they continue on their way. And um, <laughs> Michelle goes to Montana, do you know who that was? And Montana's only response was, did you see how short her skirt was? <laughs> and Michelle goes, that was Dolly Parton. <laughs> she can do whatever. <laughs> I think as Dolly Parton would say, has said, yeah. it takes a lot of money to look that cheap. Exactly. It's one of my yeah. favorite quotes. It's amazing. And um, I specifically asked for permission to tell that. I love that. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. you for asking permission. We're getting better at that too. Mm-hmm. Um, I once watched, I think she was being interviewed by uh, like Fallon or Kimmel or Colbert or something like that. And they go, um, do the like dumb blonde jokes ever get to you? Mm-hmm. And she goes, no, the dumb blonde jokes ever get to me for two reasons. One, we know they're not true. And two, we know we're not blonde. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I love her so much. I know. She has done more for this country than anyone. Yeah, I think she had another quote. She goes, well, you know, every day I wake up, get out of bed, put my clothes on and get myself home. <laughs> It's so funny. Also, I love that our patrons have been trying to find you that I know. Dolly Parton image. Dear listener, if you're not one of our patrons, or if you're a patron not on Discord, um, Grant, several episodes, many Months ago, episodes maybe ago. Maybe first 10 episodes. Yeah, said that he's looking for a very retro image of Dolly Parton, like, leaving a club to put in his bathroom. And we have gotten, so many of our patrons are so diligently looking for this image. Some of them even went to like AI to try and generate it. (laughs) None of them looked right. Um, But it's very sweet. I love that. Um, I love it too, because it reminds me of so many early days of the podcast. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to check my calendar real quick. This is officially our half birthday. We published on May 31st, and it's the last day of November right now. Happy six months! Happy birthday. six months to us! <laughs> this won't Just come so out you know, while, first but... anniversary gift usually is paper. Just so you know, paper. Same. <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> I'll get you a card saying seek help for heroin addiction. How about that? If you are getting help, nothing wrong with that. Maybe wild to get if you've never once tried heroin, but otherwise. <laughs> Totally fine. It wasn't a card for heroin. <laughs> it was a card produced by a company that does that. 
I'm worried people will think that we're bigots. <laughs> I am too, and I'm sorry. I tell the joke now all the time. It's really funny. <laughs> it's a really sweet card too. Yeah, I know. Um, How was your Thanksgiving, Grant? It was good. It was really good. Uh, a lot of time mm -hmm. in Nebraska, which on its own is not a bad thing yeah. anymore. Um, <laughs> 30 needed to get over it. Uh, <laughs> it's just I definitely do end up missing the like beautiful and wonderful life that I have developed here in Denver. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, it was I wish I had more. It was honestly very, very pleasant. And my dad had a bunch. Oh, I'm sorry, dad, because I know you're listening to this, but you should have known. <laughs> oh, no. You mentioned very offhandedly in our Whisper in the Woods episode <laughs> that there's an so owl in the corner of the $1 bill. And you just say it in the same way you and I say lots of things on this podcast. I think we did a uh, calculation like 48 hours worth of content now exists just in our main form. Yes, crazy. So we just say things all the time now. And so I wasn't expecting a pop quiz when I got home. I got home and my dad hands me a dollar and I go, thank you. And he goes, no, where's the owl? And I go, what are you talking about? I got a text from Grant. I think it was like landing in Texas at this point. And I opened my phone and Grant's like, Maya, where is the owl in the dollar bill? You said it was there in Whisper in the Woods and my dad can't find it. Maya, help. Maya, he has a magnifying glass. Maya, here's a picture of my dad with a magnifying glass and a dollar bill. It's so funny. My dad loves that kind of stuff. Yeah. It turns out top right corner. Top very record. small. It's a very tiny little bump. And it's a kind of it's a bump that's so small that if you just have your regular science kit magnifying glass, you'll be able to notice it's a bump, but you kinda of have to just kind of trust on faith that it's an owl. <laughs> that's where it's at. And so that was like day one. I drove in Friday night, based you know, said hi to the parents, but we all went to bed. It was like midnight, one AM. First conversation Saturday morning. Where's so the owl, Grant? Funny. <laughs> um also in related news, yesterday was Spotify Wrapped Day. Oh my god. Which was my D-Day. <laughs> As the person who tries to handle the majority of messages on social medias and stuff, it was fine in the morning before class started. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then at like 8, 10, the room got too busy for me to be on my phone. And at 8.20, school started. And then I didn't come back to it until... I think towards the end of my plan period, close to 11, and I was like, oh my god, there's like 18 messages I have to reply to. <laughs> and usually like a big day is like three, you know? It's a nice consistent amount of yeah, messages. Yeah. And we wanted to let you all know how much we loved you and how much we appreciated it. I wanted to share and you're sharing, but I opened it up and I was like, gentlemen, it's been an honor of my lifetime <laughs> playing with you this evening. Just so much. But it was great. It was wild to see people have us on their Spotify rap, that we could be part of that. I truly cool don't moment. think my brain has um, put it all together. Put it all yet. together no. yet? No, absolutely no. not. Um, but it was good. And then I actually have one more 
shout out potentially. Yeah. Um, this goes out to a listener. Um, I'm going to keep them anonymous, but they're a pretty cool dog, and they'll understand what that reference is. Uh, this listener uh, just finished nine months of chemotherapy. Hell yeah! And we're so grateful, and we're so happy for you. Mm-hmm. And just want you to know that we really are rooting for you. So just wanted to give you a special shout out. They didn't actually ask for permission to say your name, but I think you'll know who you and are. I'm also rooting for the this. dogs. Yes, the dogs who are there too. Yeah. That's not shocking that Maya's also rooting for the dogs. They're just really cute. Um, <laughs> jumping into other listeners' stories, yeah. one of the messages we got was a woman who was like, I have planned a trip to Denver to go to Casa Bonita, which means I think we need to reach out to Denver Department of Tourism <laughs> and also Lakewood Department of Tourism because it's not in Denver and get our royalties. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, do they put on extra lights for Christmas? Because they drove past it today Maybe. running errands, and she she looks real nice right now. Probably. This is the first up. Christmas that they're open with the new owners. True. Casa so. Benita's first Christmas. <laughs> Get like a little ornament and like hang it on. <laughs> Why are you emotional about it's that? It's really cute. <laughs> it's perfect that it's hometown hijinks and mm-hmm. that this is your hometown because yeah. that was the kind of reaction that only a person who l- truly grew up with, de- with really Class Bonita. Also, I just spent the last week uh, dog sitting for dear friends Kelsey and Edgar, who, by the way, will be hosting us for part yes. three of this series. Mm-hmm. And the reason they're hosting us is because Kelsey loves Christmas uh, and has, <laughs> for example, here's how much they love Christmas. Um, the week after Halloween. This year started a little bit early because they had a bit of the depressies, which same. Um, but they have Christmas week. Nice. Week. A whole week to decorate. Oh. <laughs> this is actually now reminded me of something else I need to talk to you about. Cool. But yes. Okay. <laughs> so is it like one room a day? Is it like an advent know. calendar, but of Christmas? Do you know what an advent calendar is? I know what an advent the calendar is. The way you shook it, you were raised by Lutheran nuns. I forget about that. Yeah. Yep, okay. Lutherans don't have nuns, but You're yep. right. I, I'm a Lutheran. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, Grant. Uh, no, but she has. they have trees in every room. They have lights and stockings, and everything kind of is like so beautifully color-coordinated with their huskies, which is beautiful. Um, and so when we were in Munich, I think I might have mentioned this on the podcast. I'm not sure. But when we were in Munich, I bought this tiny, tiny pickle ornament mm. because there's a German tradition, and I didn't realize it was German. I just knew that Kelsey Nedger did it. But they hide a pickle in the tree and then whoever finds the pickle either gets to open their presents first or gets an extra present or whatever. Mm. Um, and I decided the reason I signed up to dog sit for them <laughs> right after I got back from Thanksgiving was so that I could hide this pickle somewhere on the tree. Uh, on one of their trees. So I sent a picture when they landed today. They were in, like, Europe. And when they landed today, I sent them a picture of this pickle. And it's, like, literally not even the full length of my finger. It's tiny. It's a small little pickle. And I sent it of them in... sent it of the pickle in front of their main tree and was like, your last souvenir from Munich has (gasps) arrived. Good luck. Oh, my God. (laughs) And Kelsey thought that meant I hit it in the main tree. And I said... Classic oh, no. ruse. She was, I was like, it may or may not be there. And she said, oh, no, that's so many trees. <laughs> okay, Agatha Christie, pop off. See you in 10 days in the Yorkshires. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I do think they have a pickle maybe in every other tree. Because when I sent it, she was like, oh, great, that tree didn't have a pickle. And I was like, I only found one pickle when I was searching. <laughs> so 
awkward. And it was in the fridge because I needed a little salty snack. <laughs> a little gherkin. <laughs> the day that I knew Edgar loved Kelsey, I used to, Kelsey used to be my boss. And so Edgar would make appearances every now and again. And we uh, used to plan like concerts and stuff. Right. And so we would go backstage and meet the artists. And that often meant that we would like get to snack on some of their snacks. <laughs> I don't know if we were supposed to. I'd also going to be in the green room. Yeah, exactly. And so we go in for our meet and greet with small pools. We come out. As we're coming out, Edgar had gone in with us for the meet and greet. And we're coming back, going backstage to meet up back up with Kelsey. And he's maybe a little buzzed, but he turns. I have a video on my Snapchat. He turns around and he opens his hand to me and he has a pickle. Just a raw pickle in his <laughs> raw hands. For Kelsey, because she loves pickles. I love pickles too, but I, I need to be the one that touches it. Okay. Well, this was an act of love and I know that you don't know a lot about that. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll be laying down for the rest of this episode. I mean, you're right, but it's still pretty fucked up to say. <laughs> I don't know if she ate it, but oh, she listen, did if you get a palm cry. pickle, you gotta eat that palm pickle. You don't. <laughs> Gross. I'm still looking at the camera. He winked, made some very suggestive faces. I winked, did like a second wink with the other eye, kind of like closed both <laughs> eyes, and then kind of went like... Moved his whole face around. Absolutely. Cute. That's really cute. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I spent Thanksgiving in Port Aransas, Texas. Right. We, Kel, or Casey's family rented a house, and um, I realized in the episode that released today that I said I wasn't excited because, not because of the nieces and nephews, but I didn't make it clear that I love the nieces and nephews. <laughs> I haven't made it that far in our three plus hour episode that we just dropped. <laughs> I still have to edit next week's episode, and I uh -huh. am so sick of listening to Fatty Hurst at this point. <laughs> And like That's 12 hours between friends. <laughs> I'm so glad that I did this story, but the way that I wish I could not edit the episode. <laughs> or any of the reels. It will think of us, but if you want to hire it out, that's fine. <laughs> no. I get it. It's like $100 for 60 minutes. Can I you know. imagine? That's why I said it will bankrupt us, but if this is what you want, I will support your dream. No. Because <laughs> I know that it's not going to come back the way that I want it to. <laughs> I'll still have to do the work anyways. What was it? Oh, it was our Whisper in the Woods episode. Like, if you've ever been yeah. to an event, just know there's a stressed out woman <laughs> behind the scenes somewhere getting someone a Diet Coke. <laughs> anyway, my nieces are very cute. The nephew's too young. He's still, sure. still a baby baby. Still undetermined if he's cute. I get that. I mean, he is cute. They're sacks he's just of flour like... up until a certain point. They're microwave sacks of flour. I come, listen, I have 25 first cousins. I have at least 18 second cousins, all of whom I see. Oh, that's just mom's side of the family. I have the authority to say microwave sacks of flour for the first two years. And then they start talking. Anyway, uh, Casey's brother doesn't have a girlfriend this year. Nice. And so Same. I didn't have to compete with any um, pretty blondes to mm. be the favorite aunt. And that was a giant ego boost. So the entire family just genetically gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Cool. Uh, yeah. Nice. Good, trip. Good for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I don't know. Seeing a little kid be like, like just like, I don't know. I was doing a puzzle. I was helping Michelle with this like giant 2000 piece puzzle for okay. a couple days. And I guess the younger of the two was like sitting at the table, like trying to be me because I was like organizing the puzzle pieces. And it was very good luck, sweet. honey. That's a hard act to follow. I also like couldn't even be mad at her <laughs> for messing up all of the organization I did for hours because I was like, no, Become a teacher, that wears off real fast. Oh, yeah. Well, these are, they're like three and four. The youngest I've ever worked with is eight. And mm. I feel like that is, 
three and four, they're like, they can have a conversation, but they're still a little like spacey. You yeah, know? 100%. Yeah, so it's still, still that way in high school, but whatever. Um, <laughs> okay. On the topic of decorating, we had a lot of topics there, but on the topic of decorating, mm-hmm. I do forget that Thanksgiving break is also when my parents decorate the house. Mm. There's a very specific type of real Christmas tree that they like to get. Mm. And to make sure they get it before it's sold out, they just like buy it. 10 days before Thanksgiving, essentially. I love that. Came home, and the tree was already there. Love now, they that. needed to wait for me to get home so they could put <laughs> it up. Decorate oh. Um, oh, no, no, not decorate. Literally hoist, hoist it, it into okay. the living room. Okay, yep. um, and so, tree went up, uh, and because you got to start watering it, so that way it doesn't die, because it's going to be up until I've past New Year's. I've never had a live tree. Oh, a real tree? tree? No. Oh, nothing better than coming up in the morning, and you can smell the tree, and then you put on a pot of coffee, and it's like... A Pillsbury Hallmark Merry Christmas Victoria's Secret commercial. I don't Tell know. Tell me how know. perfect your childhood was. Norman Some Rockwell yeah, painting. So anyways. <laughs> oh, yeah. The story does not get better for me from there. <laughs> my mom still decorates the house. Grant's or- like, I went home and had to help my family put up these perfect decorations so that I could have these perfect mornings. Fuck you, man. <laughs> I hear it now. I hear it when you play oh, it back. Yeah, okay. In my defense, that's just what it's always been. <laughs> Listen, I see the charm. I've just always lived in here. My mom and I would decorate the tree and like yell at my dad whenever he got too close. Because <laughs> we were like, no! Oh, that's so sweet. He would he would build it because we had the fake tree. So he would build mm. it and fluff all the branches. And The other trees in the house are fake, but the one in the main room is real. So we had more that. than one tree. We had bathroom trees growing up, which I'm realizing now during your story, not a common experience. <laughs> oh, also, God, I've now started many stories. For years, one of our, is it Easter? We'd always get a present from my, maybe it was Thanksgiving or Christmas, whatever. We would always get an ornament from my grandma mm. on one very specific holiday. And when I was 25, I found out my mom was buying them and just saying it was from grandma. That's hilarious. And we were like, what? <laughs> and mom's like, of course, what you think Bernice was driving up to Lincoln to pick out ornaments? <laughs> and I was like, yes. I did. Yes, that's exactly what I thought was happening. Speaking of which, Michelle got us all ornaments for <laughs> from Port Aransas. Um, I need to wrap up all of these stories. Yeah. So, lied to, real tree, decorating the house. Norman, Ro- Norman Rockwell painting. Rockwell painting for, because it's like football. Remember that one time and... you told me the story of your you and your friends writing rules <laughs> in like cherries on sidewalks? For the most organized game of cul-de-sac kickball you've ever played in your entire life. Anyway. Um, <laughs> God, this story turned south on me so quick. <laughs> Here's the punchline slash moral of the story. Mom still, I think, likes, enjoys the house decorated. I don't think she thrives on the art of decorating. Mm. And that's because since my mom has gotten an iPhone, Mm. every year before she takes the ornaments down, she takes a picture of every room in the house. So she can redo it. Yeah, so that way come Thanksgiving, my mom goes, where did I put this guy? Oh, okay. And then <laughs> just like walk off and put it up where it goes. Yeah, 100%. I, I love 
Christmas decorations. And so I love sitting at Kelsey's house with all the beautiful lights. Mm. And I, I sent you a picture. It's like mm-hmm. gorgeous. Uh, I don't I don't think my brain does that because as you can see, I put a lot of effort into decorating. And I think part of that reason is so that I can do it once. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying my entire style is like postmodern. Yeah. So like I have a tree that we put up and I decorate and it's cute. But then I'm like, and then it stays up until like February because I'm like, wait, I have to take it down. But like Christmas comes again in like 10 months. <laughs> Well, this has been a great hometown hijinks episode. <laughs> Tune in next week. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah, going back to my hometown mm-hmm. was enjoyable. And I'm now very excited mm-hmm. for the next couple episodes to be about hijinks in the hometowns. Yeah, so I chose hometown hijinks be- not because I had a story prepared, um, <laughs> but because I wanted it to be like hometown for the holidays. And hometown hijinks just felt right. Sure. Um, so... Some of my story is not very hijinksy, but it is about Denver. Mine's kind of hijinksy. Mine, De- Grant is gonna love. Oh, I, I'm gonna shut up. Maya, go ahead. <laughs> oh, okay. Now you want to hear dun, my dun. story? <laughs> I could tell you more about my Norman Rockwell childhood if you no, want. No, I really don't want to hear about it. During I love... the summers, we'd spend it on our various aunts and uncles' farms. And uh, I learned how to spot poison ivy from crick swimming. Anyway. My grandpa taught me how to ride a horse. (laughs) I learned how to ride a horse because I had no uh, hand-eye coordination, which was Mm. revisited during Thanksgiving week when Casey's parents tried to teach us pickleball. Oh, that's kind of sweet. It was fun until, it was fun while Casey and I were both learning. No longer fun once mm. Casey had it figured out and I was still, still learning. Strug- I started out better than him. My learning curve is significantly less <laughs> steep than his. Okay. <laughs> so it was uh, an ego boost at first and then it got really um, annoying. One but- year after the Thanksgiving meal on my mom's side, we did a big family game of uh, tackle football in the uh, harvested cornfield behind grandma's house. And it's a very funny story for us all to relive because my sister kept tackling me even when I didn't have the ball. It's really funny. It is very funny. <laughs> it's also, those are the only stories about me that ever get shared ever. <laughs> They'll be like, well, and then Griffin got his master's degree from one of the best uh, engineering schools in the country. But let me tell you about this one time our child <laughs> was an adolescent being bullied by his sister. That's a real crowd pleaser. <laughs> That's how I know I'm loved. (laughs) You had a story. (laughs) I had a story. So um, this story, I think, is very quickly going to go somewhere that Grant knows. So I did an effort, or I made a significant effort to start out with something Grant hopefully hopefully does not know and then hopefully we'll get a nice a nice shocked face from him that i can put everywhere is this what it feels like to be in a secure relationship where someone knows you and then makes an effort yeah okay it's nice (laughs) (laughs) i i have been wrong about a couple things like when someone brings you a pickle palm pickles are gross what it's saltier and room temperature Hey, I was somewhere you weren't, saw something you like, and wanted you to have it. Here, it's been in my pocket. Now it's in my hand. You should eat it. It's a pickle. Like, I get the sentimental value. You realize these people are hosting us in, like, less than a week, That's why right? we gotta go before this episode No, drops. I already told them I'm giving them the unreleased episode so they can be caught up. Um, listen. I'm not gonna apologize. I think we know that about me at this point. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <sighs> so anyway, our story is going to begin not in Colorado, but in North Carolina in 1862. I wrote 1962. That is not right. It's 1862. Middle of the Civil War. Well, I guess probably more at the start. Oh, you sure. said North Carolina, so yes. we're in the Confederacy. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, she, her name is Louise, <clears throat> was born in North Carolina as basically Southern aristocracy. Aristocracy. Okay. God, I can never say that Aristocracy. Word. Aristocracy. That's the second I time that's happened. I gave her two attempts. On this podcast <laughs> with that exact word. Aristocracy. 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 Good. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> since she's born to a rather wealthy family during this time, she does get the privilege of an education. So she gets educated at, I believe it was some sort of religious all-girls school in New York City. Whoa. Yeah. Hold on. She's born in 1862? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Cool. That makes way more sense. I'm yeah. like, how did she get to New York during the Civil War? But they probably didn't send her when she was three. Gotcha. No, yeah, probably oh, not. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. All right. I'm fully locked in. <laughs> Caught up. Great. So her mother died just after giving birth to her, and her father died when she was around 29. Um, she wasn't having a bunch of luck finding a suitor in North Carolina, so she goes to live with her sisters in Memphis, Tennessee, where they're out there... I think searching for a more appropriate suitor, aka rich suitor. Nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. I get that. <laughs> yeah, in 1893, she comes to visit Denver. Uh, where her cousins are living at the Bethel Mansion on Cap Hill. So at this point in the story, she's like 31. But mm-hmm. in my mind, you know what's playing. Oh, Don't judge me. Oh, I say. Wow, you just found a knife and just keep. No, I was trying to have this beautiful moment of togetherness. I'm 27 years old. I have no money and no prospects. <laughs> she had money and prospects. No, she didn't. This is her third city to find a man. She did the Real Housewives of New York, Real Housewives of Memphis, and now she's launching her own Real Housewives of Denver. Yeah. And anyway. I'm frightened. <laughs> Anyway, she comes here. Her cousins are living at the Bethel Mansion uh, in Capitol Hill, which is still, we still call it Cap Hill today. Yep. Uh, And this is where she meets a Crawford Hill, who is the son of Senator Nathaniel P. Hill. Nathaniel P. Hill was actually like the second senator uh, elected to the Senate after Colorado became a state, which was kind of crazy, but he was a chemist and a metallurgist and which made him a successful mining entrepreneur. And he brought mining interest to Blackhawk, which is like a pretty famous gambling location now, but also a mine, (laughs) uh, and developed Colorado's first smelter, which will take ore and make it into more refined. Did he also found the first Delta or a smelter? Delta. That was, (laughs) That was funny, but so bad. That was a dad joke. Never gonna go through this. There was a minute where I was like, "Don't say it," and then I was like, "When has that ever been a rule for me?" (laughs) Kaboom! Smelter dealt it. Whoever smelt it dealt it. Jesus. Sorry. You ready? No. We haven't seen each other in like two weeks. Weird. Uh, They married in 1895, her and the son, Crawford Hill. Uh, He is the only son of Nathaniel P. Hill. And so he is obviously going to get the entire estate. He's very wealthy. Okay. And dad's the senator. This is the son of the senator. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, They get married. 
I believe they live in an apartment for a while or something, and then they end up um, b- building a mansion at 10th and Sherman, which is still standing, and it's called the Crawford Hill Mansion. Okay. Coincidentally, I got the idea for this story while I was on that walk- a ghost, ghost tour. tour. <laughs> <laughs> because we, our first stop was the Crawford Hill Mansion. Okay, so I'm glad to know that you also have this experience that I do, which is anytime I experience anything new ever now mm-hmm. anymore, I'm, I'm like, taking notes. wait, could this be an episode? Wait, hold on. When I went to the Mob Maybe. Museum in Las Vegas, <laughs> I still have so many ideas on my phone. Okay, so Louise Sneed Hill is a woman that's kind of defined by duality. She combined her Southern roots with a, quote, a moral, puritanical work ethic common of the North, as well as the vision of liberal individualism widely associated with the West to present a new vision of gentility? Mm -hmm. Gentility? I don't know. Uh, Being a... (laughs) She's an educated, independent woman. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I think I keep forgetting that this is not Patty Hearst and that my brain can like <laughs> You're so deep relax. in it. I'm like so deep in it that I was taking these notes and I was Into like, we don't Patty need verse. all <laughs> I don't need every single little detail. Um hey, you painted a full picture of her. What's her name? I don't know. Okay. This one? Mrs. Hill. <laughs> Louise Sneed Hill. Louise Sneed Hill. Her nice. maiden name was Louise Bethel Sneed and then Louise Sneed Hill. Cool. Yep. Um Yeah, so she aimed to transform what she called the, quote, social wasteland of Denver into a reputable society. Uh, yeah, good she, luck. <laughs> <laughs> so she invited those she considered to be the best of Denver's high society to play bridge at their mansion. And this, uh, she's trying to take what she considered the old guard into kind of the new uh, modern era of being a woman. So the old guard uh, was also, <laughs> I need to start over. <laughs> Because that was not what I meant to say. <laughs> the I hope it's old... only two pages of notes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the old guard was the previous social class right. in Denver. Like, it was called the old guard. Of course it was. Excellent. I'm going to start that again because that okay. makes it obvious that I fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> So her name is Louisa Sneed Hill. Louise Sneed Hill. Louise Sneed Hill. Yeah. Okay. So the old guard is what the previous uh, wealthy class of Denver had been called. And she wanted to rebrand this um, because the old guard was kind of informal. And she obviously wanted to take ownership and Mm. create something that she's familiar with from being in New York City. Be a Miss Astoria, but of Denver. Yes. She wanted to ring everyone up kind mm-hmm. of be the leader of mm-hmm. high society. Yeah. And so she created the Sacred 36. Oh. Mm-hmm. Which she, uh, I don't actually think she named it that. I believe it was a news reporter. The Secret 36? Sacred. Sacred. That's better. Okay. Yeah. The Sacred 36. Um, this, the Sacred 36 became the first internationally recognized elite social scene in Denver and quote, resulted in the acknowledgement of the city as a legitimate cultural and educated place to the larger world. She made it, she made Denver a place to be and is seen as a major contributor to the development of Denver's current cultural institutions. She refined it from a frontier town to a cosmopolitan city. Um, the reason it ended up being 36 people, I don't think she intended it intent, like she meant for that to happen, but her like ballroom or living room or whatever had enough space for nine tables of four women each to play bridge at. Oh, nice. So it's a bridge club. And nine times four is, I'm kidding. (laughs) 
Because you put the four down, and then you can count, and then it's 36. I don't know if it reverses it or not. You hate me so much sometimes. You're just saying a lot of <laughs> stupid things today. It's weird how our codependency manifests itself. <laughs> it's great to see you. Excellent. So, Louise Sneed Hill on top of being kind of the ringleader of the Sacred 36, was also a master of managing her own public image. So she gave interviews and party invitations specifically to newspaper reporters in order to reveal more of the inner workings of high society to a greater audience. She would even pay editors of the local papers to emphasize high society drama. Mm, nice. Yeah, and this also... All news is good news. Yeah, and this also drew more people to want to become part of the 36. Sure. And she was very strict about who was allowed in, nice. who stayed, who left, what... Uh, allowed you to stay and leave okay. and like the rules that were maintained because she was the cream of the crop. Um, so she hosted, She, I think she really wanted to take things out of the Gilded Age Victorian era like idea of a woman. And so she was kind of hosting kind of these funky events, which I love. Okay. She hosted breakfast balls, champagne luncheons. She hosted roller skating in her ballroom, afternoon dances featuring scandalous dances like the turkey trot <laughs> and the worm wiggle. <laughs> The turkey trot was so scandalous. It was very popular in like 1909, but it was so scandalous that it was prohibited by the White House. <laughs> At the White House? <laughs> At or? the White House. Okay. Uh, in 1913, Woodrow Wilson feared the scandal of having people dance the turkey trot, and he feared that so much that he opted to have a public reception instead of an inaugural ball. <laughs> what are they doing? What is the turkey trot? I bet it it's a looks lot of knees. like it's like swing dance, sure. kind of, but maybe a little like closer, like you stand closer or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> and also, every spring she would unveil a classical statue of a nude woman holding lilies to announce the opening of the social season. I want to do that. <laughs> I want a small reception the week before my birthday because it's in late April. To announce the start of the social season. Like our social season ever ends. But I love to think that my birthday kicks it off. Can I then release a pamphlet written by an anonymous writer <laughs> about everyone's drama? Yes. Okay, miss, what's it? Whistle down. There, it's not Penn Bagley. I think that's the name of an actor. Pen. Yeah, that's the also, name of an, <laughs> an actor that plays a serial killer. And is super hot. Yeah. Also, when you said, can I release, I heard dubs in my head. And I was about to be like, well, of course. <laughs> of course you can release stuffs. It'll probably be a garden party in the backyard right after planting's done. I love that. Thank you. We'll so, need to commission the statue of a nude woman. I think we can probably find a pretty cheap live performance artist for it. That's hysterical. <laughs> I don't think it's that hard to hire. No, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure if it was a new statue every year, if it was mm. the same statue she, that she unveiled every year. I love year, that. I was like, but... it's naked and it's time to party. Put it away! Put it away for this year! They saw it! They saw it! <laughs> Grab the flowers before you put it in storage. <laughs> How else are you supposed to imagine that? No, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. I'm, so, I'm probably being a little facetious, but like that does feel exactly like what happened. <laughs> yeah. That sounds exactly like something she would say. Okay. 
So between the Gilded Age and the more contemporary time of the 20th century, the idea of a woman changed dramatically from a woman remaining in the home, censoring pleasures like drinking games and sexual desires to women being allowed to establish their own identities, drink, dance, embrace sexuality, enjoy leisure and fun without being considered a, quote, fallen woman. Um, there's a comparison of American society to English aristocracy slash nobility. While British nobility is defined by birthright, American aristocracy stems from the actions of those in society, and it's right. considered cultural capital. Discussed heavily in seasons three and four of Downton Abbey. Okay. That, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Okay, so many like to argue that the beginning of this contemporary society and social norms began with the influence of movie stars, flappers, F. Scott Fitzgerald, like that whole vibe of like the roaring 20s but these would not have been able to impact society as much without the work of those coming out of the gilded age like louise sneed hill right also hill was low-key a goddamn savage <laughs> um not only is she kind of like the mean girl of denver society there's literally a book written about her called the queen of denver i love that yeah um so she entered an affair with one bulkley i repeat bulkley is, his, is is that a description or the name? The name. Bulkley. Oh. It's like, I thought it was Buckley. Bulkley. Is it is that two names or one name? One B-U-L-K-E-L-E-Y. Oh, okay. Anyway, she <laughs> entered it. So she's married to, uh, what's his face? Uh, Crawford Hill. Okay. And she enters an affair nice. with Bulkley Wells after meeting him in 1914. <laughs> Can I point out, for all of the stories we have done from history, I think... When you don't have smartphones, you have affairs. Like that that's, is the I think that's what entertains I people. I have so much free time in my hands, I might as well have a whole second relationship. <laughs> Obviously, infidelity. You can start a podcast. Right. <laughs> you can start a podcast, kind of stop going on dates. <laughs> I mean, it's probably better for it's your fun. mental health. Uh, yeah. No one's going to be bringing you pickles, though. <laughs> She entered an affair with one Bulkley Wells after meeting him in 1914. Bulkley was a polo-playing socialite and a general of the Colorado National Guard and had mining interests in Colorado. Uh, interestingly, her husband, uh, Hill's husband, did not seem to mind the nice. affair. In fact, the three of them would like travel together and dine together frequently. Very much like my relationship with the Bohawks. However, <laughs> Bulkley was married. Oh, did his spouse no. mind? His spouse absolutely minded. Oh, shucks. Uh, yeah. There's always one flying the cream. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Louise loved Bulkley. Okay. And since it wasn't, like, seen as, I don't know, something so scandalous, uh, she had a giant portrait of him in her foyer. <laughs> Next to the a portrait of her husband. Okay. Which was smaller. <laughs> <laughs> But where was the naked statue woman? I don't know. <laughs> In front of all of them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, Bulkley was married with four children and his wife... Oh, yeah. like real married. Okay, she had two kids too, I think. Sure, sure. Four just, that's... That seems like a lot of kids. Yeah, now, that's fair. You know? That's fair. Uh, his wife, I believe her name was Alice, I could be wrong, uh, divorced him in 1918. Hmm. Wells lost $18 million in mining interests and the loss of the financing he received from his wife's family in that divorce. Crawford Hill, uh, meanwhile, he is still having an affair with Louise. Right. Crawford Hill then dies in 1922, and naturally Louise thinks that she'll marry Bulkley, the man right. she's been sleeping with now for uh, eight years. 
Instead, he elopes with a younger woman <gasps> in Nevada. Ain't no good, no how. Ain't. Uh, Louise's response, instead of taking it like a lady, because she's so against just sitting back and taking things, what's her response? Quote, break him. Yes! <laughs> she persuades his remaining financial backer, Henry Payne Whitney, to withdraw his support, <sighs> and as a result, Bulkley lost his mining empire and all of his speculations in oil and gas. And it's going to get sad the for a succession second. audio is currently playing in my head yeah. right now. <laughs> She's a savage. Um, unfortunately, he then turns to gambling, loses the last of his money, and then um, dies by suicide in 1931. Oh, okay. So that's not good. No, not good. Uh, Louise's actions leading up to that were um, funny for the time. And yeah, but she is a mean girl. By and large. Apparently, she did not even publicly acknowledge his death. Okay. Yeah. See, at first, I'm like, yeah, jilted lover. Like, you get it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's also, like, all's fair in love and business. But then, okay. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that puts a bit of a sour twist to it. Yeah. Is okay. there any pop cultural figure that maybe this mean girl reminds you of? I said mean girl for a reason. Okay, is it Regina George? Yes, Regina George. (laughs) I'm trying to make a metaphor. It feels so obviously mean girls, Regina George, that I'm like searching outside Mm -hmm. of that. I'm like, no, the unsinkable Molly Brown just had a thing against ships, not people. Uh, (laughs) Also a Denver woman, Mm -hmm. uh, mining interest. Okay, so how is this connected to Regina George at all? Uh, What does every Regina George need? A Katie Heron. A Katie Heron. Who do you think her Katie Heron was? Elizabeth Katie Stanton? Nope. Okay, that's why Katie Heron's name no, and no, no, the no. episode of this name. No. Um, Molly Brown? Yes! <laughs> yes! Yeah. And my, you mean Katie Heron? Okay, for those of you who weren't gay in 2005, <laughs> like four of you, <laughs> and my parents. Um, <laughs> Uh, Katie Heron is the best friend and nemesis and then kind of mutual acquaintances again. Um, both like heroine and villain of the movie Mean Girls. Yeah. Um, Molly Brown's not really going to have a villain era. She's just, she's just a hero. Oh, okay. So she pushes Hill in front of a bus. Yeah. Nice. (laughs) Nice. No new ideas in Hollywood. No, no new ideas. No, no, no Wait, so ideas. what happens? What's this legacy? So we're going to backtrack a little bit to get a little bit of Molly Brown's background. Um, her name is actually not Molly. It's Margaret. Nice. <laughs> uh, and we'll kind of get into why it's it's Hollywood that really changes it to Molly. Okay. Um, it rhymes better. Mm-hmm. But so Margaret Tubin, more commonly known as the, quote, the unsinkable Molly Brown. Her name is not Molly, but this was changed uh, as Molly was easier to rhyme when the musical about her life came out. When did that musical come out? 1960. <laughs> is she still alive when it comes out? I don't think so. She no. had to be like relatively recently dead. Um, I'm not sure. So for the last like 65 years, we've been calling her Molly because it rhymes easier with Jolly than like Margaret, her name. I don't know. I feel bad. For I all know. Of the Titanic knowledge I know, I should have known that. Yeah. And I'm going to quiz you on your Titanic knowledge later. Good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See what if I said? You wanted to shut me up. That was how you do it. 
<laughs> get nervous. Uh, <laughs> so she's Irish Catholic, uh, born in 1867 in Hannibal, Missouri, on the Mississippi River. Her parents are immigrants from Ireland, and she was one of five children born from her parents. Do we have time for a side tangent? Yeah, sure. Have you ever been to Hannibal, Missouri? I didn't know Hannibal, Missouri existed until right now. Oh, it's the birthplace of Mark Twain. Oh, that makes sense. Um, and it's also, as a person who spent a lot of time driving in the Midwest, Yeah. and I'm sorry, but this is fair, the scariest town I have <laughs> ever pulled into. When you pull into Hannibal, Missouri, you can tell it used to be much bigger than it currently is. Mm -hmm. So it's just a ghost living in a too big skeleton of itself. I hate that. And when we were driving, we were driving from Indiana to Nebraska after a college football game. Um, and that was fine. It's just very Norman Rockwell again. Um, yeah, it is. And we needed dinner, and mm -hmm. we were in the mood for Mexican food. And it's me, Jacob, Lydia, a couple other of our friends. So we walk into this gas station, because we also need gas, and we ask the gas station attendant, mm -hmm. hey, where's the closest Mexican restaurant? And this gas station, this is a verbatim quote, there's four other people. I'm not being prejudiced. This gas station person goes, the only Mexican food I eat is Taco Bell, and that's just down the road. And we were like, ha ha ha, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> run out of the store. We fortunately find a Mexican restaurant and it's us and just one other party, which you think is good, except that other party is a 23-person family. Oh my god! <laughs> pushed together all of the tables. And also, their hours weren't really posted, so we didn't really know this, but we think we had arrived kind of right around the time of their closing. Nice. Jacob ordered a burrito. Oh, no. I mean, we all ordered okay. things. Okay. The thing Jacob ordered was a burrito. The waiter comes out with a plate of lettuce. And then about 90 seconds later, a different waiter comes around and pretends Jacob had already eaten the burrito. <laughs> <laughs> and we had to be like, no, there's never been a burrito. I think we all just kind of eat chips and salsa and leave. And then we're like, let's get out of Hannibal, Missouri yeah. as fast as possible. Much like Margaret Brown, I'm yeah. sure thought. And as we are speeding out of town, we hit a raccoon the size of a small border that shreds the front of my tire. Oh my God. And at like midnight. So fortunately, it didn't destroy the tire. It destroyed the plastic casing around the tire. So me, Jacob, and our third friend Carter used chewing gum and paper clips I had in my car to like fashion something to hold it back together so we could finish the drive to Lincoln. Oh my God. And we made it home. And then the next day, when my dad and I had to bring my car into the shop, he paraded me around like I had won the train. <laughs> this is my son. You want to see what he did? He survived Hannibal. <laughs> Figured it out before the engineers could. Dad. I'm just desperate. <laughs> and that's my experience in Hannibal, Missouri. Honestly, great story. I'm sure it's full of lovely people. We had the strangest time. <laughs> anyway, that's where Margaret <laughs> Brown's from. She also got out as fast as she, she could. She also ended up getting out. I don't know about as fast as she could. It is the 1800s. Um, but anyway, she's one of five. Children born of her parents, but both parents had previous marriages, so she also had two half-sisters. So if you're counting on your little fingers, that's a lot of people yeah. living in a two-bedroom home. Oof. Uh, I think they said it was like 16 by 30 feet. Oof. Just small. It is very small. Margaret's parents valued education, and so although they were not very well off, they managed to send 
I'm not sure about all of the kids, but they did manage to send Margaret to school until she was 13, which is Ooh, the equivalent wow. yeah, of getting through eighth grade, which is no small feat back then. What year is that? Uh, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> 1870s, maybe? Nice. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so that's very rare for a woman of her time. Immediately after this, however, she did work at a tobacco factory. Okay. Earning about $3 a week, I think. Wow. Um, so after that, she has this, or during that time, she has the experience of like living a working class life, right? right. And seeing like how exploitative some of those industries can be. Uh, she ends up moving west to Leadville, Colorado, where her brother is currently working <laughs> as a uh, like as a miner, sure. I think. And here she begins to work at a department store sewing carpets, which is just a strange combination of words. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here she played witness to the harsh realities many miners and gold seekers encountered when they arrived to the Rocky Mountains. A lot of them are forced to kind of abandon their dreams of mm. uh, making it rich quick right. uh, in favor of doing low-wage labor during harsh, exploitative conditions. Margaret becomes involved at this point with soup kitchens and charities. And trying to Even do though she's not work. a society woman. Yeah, she's, she's just like a good-souled person. She's just a person. good soul, like nice. sees something that's wrong and decides, hey, I'm going to do what I can right. to help, nice help those. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Margaret meets a man named Joseph J. Brown. Uh, his nickname is JJ. Uh, he is a poor mining engineer. Poor, but with good prospects. He So smart? He's currently a mine manager. Okay. Yeah, so he's like... Making his way up the ranks. Nice. I'm not sure if he was educated to be like an making engineer. I was never sure how long we're going to go with this. I can play that entire song on the piano, so we can go all the way, baby. <laughs> um, so Margaret was torn between marrying for love, JJ, or marrying for money, as she had hoped she would do, coming from where she came from. Sure, humble and, beginnings. Yeah, and trying, she wants to find a way ultimately to be able to take care of her father and live a comfortable life. Uh, she ends up, this is a quote from her. She says, I wanted a rich man, but I loved Jim Brown. I thought about how I wanted comfort for my father and how I had determined to stay single until a man presented himself who could give to the tired old man the things I longed for him. Jim was as poor as we were and had no better chance in life. I struggled hard with myself in those days. I loved Jim, but he was poor. Finally, I decided that I'd be better off with a poor man whom I loved than the wealthy one whose money had attracted me. So I married Jim Brown. And on September 1st of 1886, they got married. Aww. Very high contrast to Louise. Yes. <laughs> if you're wondering. Uh, they end up moving just outside of Leadville to a the mine where JJ was currently working at. It was called the Little Johnny Mine. No relation to JJ, I don't think. Because <laughs> <laughs> Louisa married for status and position. Literally, that's basically it. Yeah. yeah. And like, cared for her husband, had two kids, also had a lover who she then destroyed basically killed <laughs> okay. yeah um so many people at this time dreamed of success due to the height of the silver market and what happened in 1893 it's a boom right or is it a bust and then the sherman silver purchase act gets repealed i don't know this <laughs> i really well, on, thought I guess, you were can gonna I guess what it is yeah does it remove silver as the national like 
does the U.S. stop collecting silver to back mm-hmm. up its uh, like its credit? I forget what that's called, but it's like you can yeah. trust these bills because there's a pile of silver somewhere. Yeah. So we are like, we don't need the silver anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, so it's a huge bust. It's yes because now like silver. You just gotta Basically like is it because the U.S. government doesn't want it. Yeah. So all right, we got there. It took me about three minutes before I really understood the question, but I can write a B plus uh, essay to this. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> we can talk about the progressive era politics and kind of hope that the professor's like, oh, okay, whatever. No, okay, whatever. <laughs> he doesn't know about this, but I he knows history. I am so excited to talk about my topic next, just because of this conversation oh, okay. that we're having. <laughs> Um, I can't write a B-plus report on anything you're about to say, so I just want you to know. <laughs> That's fine. Because <laughs> I have no idea how any of the science works. <laughs> okay, well. Teamwork. Hey! <laughs> so the uh, Sherman Silver Purchase Act required the U.S. Tre- Treasury to buy 4.5 million ounces of silver bullion each month in order to keep the value of silver up. Right. Uh, so when this was repealed, it caused a crash in the value of silver, and that resulted in like 90% or more of the miners in Leadville and the surrounding areas being unemployed. And so there's a huge rise in poverty. Many mines in the area turn instead to trying to find gold or other valuable um, ores. However, in the same year, JJ makes a significant discovery at the Little Johnny Mine by contributing to exploring some large ore that was seen there and finds gold. Nice. And so in recognition of these efforts, he was awarded 12,500 shares of stock in Ibex, the owner of the Little Johnny Mine, and they appointed him to their board. And just like that, they're millionaires. Oh, shit. Yeah. And she married him for love. I know. I love that. I know. Um, during this time, while they're sort of starting to uh, gain more money, uh, Maggie was busy advocating for minor we- welfare and working to better the local education system. As they began to grow in wealth, Maggie was able to focus more on her philanthropic efforts and was also known for wearing fun and dramatic hats. <laughs> That's the kind of, that's my retirement plan. <laughs> Volunteer hats. dramatic hats. <laughs> Send your hats to us. Let us know. Uh, <laughs> we'll do a fashion show if we get enough. Nice. Yeah. Could you imagine as a Patreon episode, what about this hat? I would sob laughing. I would lose my shit. Have you, did you ever watch Whose Line Is It Anyway? Yes, of they course. They used to do that like prop game yes. where they would have these ridiculous things and just like go back and forth between teams to see how many times each of them could like make up stories. I don't know if it. you know this. We do that game in my class. That makes it's called sense. Wrong Props. I pull a box out of my closet and the kids know what is about to happen when mm-hmm. that box comes out and I go, you have three minutes get started. Go. And then you have to get into a group and it's a first come first serve basis and whatever you find in the prop box you can use just not for its original intention. I know. It's so funny. They picked up a book cover and they're like, Mr. What is this? Because they need to know what not to do with it. We don't have textbooks anymore. They've never seen a book cover. They don't know what that is. They've never once brought The drama (laughs) of finding the correct book cover for your science book as a kid. And by September, the corner of the book had already Mm -hmm. pierced it. Yeah, pierced it it a little bit. Right. Did you ever have the teacher who had you all bring in paper grocery bags so you could fold Mm -hmm. it? We had like they certain no idea. books that yes. like they were like this can cannot be in the like stretchy book covers. You need to get it right. Like, what the hell? They have no idea what a book cover is, That's and so insane. they're like, "I'm like, it's a book cover," and they're like. So we can use it as a hat? And I was like, yes, that's that, that's not its original purpose. Yes, <laughs> that's fair, fine. I feel like if I picked up a book cover now, I would be like, 
Well, they the took fuck? it, and when they said, can we use it like a hat, I figured it'd be like, you know, long part in yeah. the back. No, no, they came in long part. <laughs> right? This is a robbery! It was actually very funny. <laughs> How funny. did we get here? I don't know. What, we uh, Maggie wears fun hats. Oh, right. <laughs> Margaret wears hats. Margaret. That's all it took. Yes, that's all it took. <laughs> um, so she would later be known um, for her fashion sense. Not necessarily because it was good. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was bad or good. A kid in class called me the king of crew necks the other day. And I was proud of the alliteration and the compliment. Yeah, that's fair. Uh. Yeah, I was like, I've never seen you not in a crew neck. But anyway, she wore whatever she wanted even when it wasn't in line with what the wealthy women of her time were wearing and so she just kind of always wore what she wanted and was known for it i bet she could absolutely tear up a turkey trot yes or whatever that dance is called absolutely she would uh with her new money with their new money sorry uh they moved to the big city aka denver in denver they bought a mansion on pennsylvania avenue in 19 or 1894 and have you seen the Molly Brown house? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I was, I like really contemplated going there today and then I realized that you can look at their entire collection online <laughs> and decided it wasn't worth it. And you realized the internet exists. Well, and then I realized that I had about six hours until you got here and I only had Louise Sneed Hill written. <laughs> it was like maybe... Louise Sneed Hill was. Good. Good start. Good start. <laughs> I, well, I had the whole section on Louise Sneed Hill written. <laughs> Screw you, man. A constellation of ideas. Yeah, I knew that I wanted to talk about Molly Brown but had nothing else. So I was like, maybe my time might be better spent on the internet. Anyway, there's a museum where this house that they lived in and um, I'm not sure if they built it or bought it, but this house that they lived in still stands. It was restored uh, I believe in the 60s after okay. the release of the, the musical and the movie adaptation of the musical. But it now serves as the Molly Brown house and is a museum to her life, which is pretty cool. Around this time, 1894, Denver was becoming a large hub for raw goods, smelters, etc., and thus was rife with hotels, office buildings, smoke ta- smokestacks, etc. However, Denver was not immune to the silver crash and saw the consequences with the rise of slums on the outskirts mm. of Denver and an increase in homelessness, in main, a lot of children, child homelessness, which mm. is sad. Yes. Margaret, uh, seeing this, was drawn to groups of progressive reformers to help alleviate some of these issues. She worked to install public baths and advocated for more public parks and other city improvements. With their new fortune, the Browns, I should say, Margaret Brown, enjoyed hosting social gatherings at their home and partook in some of the luxuries their wealth offered them. JJ did not particularly like these social events and missed the mountains. (laughs) God, that's so Denver. <laughs> this is my hot, smart, charitable girlfriend with a huge social network who hosts yeah. great parties. That ghost in the corner <laughs> is her boyfriend. He's packing the cross track now. <laughs> <laughs> this city has never changed. Not once. And it has my heart. <laughs> exactly, and I love it. Hometown um, hijinks. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Margaret Brown wanted to be a part of the social scene, which meant she wanted to be part of the Sacred 36. Nice. However, Louise Sneed Hill snubbed her and would not allow her entry to the Sacred 36 because of she... Uh, was a little scandalous. She said what she wanted to. She dressed how she wanted to. Right. She was also new money. She was not from old money. She was not like yeah, raised I mean, wealthy. Louise moved to Denver herself. I don't know what claim she had, but okay. Uh, she was from a rich family. Anyway, um, 
So Brown, in response, called her, quote, the snobbiest woman in Denver. <laughs> you got that right. There is some, like, show that I ran across. I couldn't find the link again once I, like, clicked out of it because it only had, like, two paragraphs and none of them were useful to me. But there is a graphic on it that just said the unsinkable and the snob. And I wish nice. I could find it again. I don't know what it was about. <laughs> um, Margaret Brown was the founding member, uh, was a founding member of the Denver Women's Club. The Women's Club is a national network of clubs dedicated to improving conditions for women and children. She also worked with Judge Ben B. Lindsay to establish one of the first juvenile courts in the country. Hmm. Previously, kids were being tried as adults. Oh, okay. Yeah, crazy. Uh, oh, she had like a real legacy. Oh my God, we are not even started. Oh, wait, is this story about like how Molly Brown, well, sorry, Margaret Brown was the Dolly Parton? Basically. Molly and Dolly. Molly and Dolly. Molly and Dolly. Okay, see Molly, I love it now. <laughs> um, and it should be noted that I'm, a lot of this is because Margaret had a really big heart and really cared yeah. for those because she saw and had herself been in them. There, had like and had been there, yeah. It, yeah. A lot, uh, some of it, at least, some motivation was so that she could be kind of recognized by high society because mm. people like Louise were also doing philanthropic acts. Sure. Louise is quoted at some point saying, um, like when she was asked why she doesn't publicize her philanthropic acts as much as her like social scenes she says something to the tune of like well i don't think it like i think that's more or i don't know uh she basically says that she doesn't need that to be publicized mm, she doesn't and, need the publicity and that is seen as kind of a stab at molly especially after uh, all of this kind of goes down some of us are fine to do good works without getting credit for it it's like okay fuck you bitch uh <laughs> anyway uh in 1901, Margaret studied language and literature at Carnegie Institute. Uh, she has a couple kids. At this point, they have tutors, like so she's not like she doesn't need to be around all the time. In 1902, the couple, so her and JJ, in an effort to kind of keep the spark alive, I okay. think, go on a world tour of sorts, and that <laughs> takes them through Ireland, France, Russia, India, and Japan. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, Margaret enjoys traveling as well, and that's another thing that I think the Sacred 36 value in high society is being uh, a traveled and cultural person. Woman. But I think they Wait, also just. What year do they do that? 1902. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We're getting there. <laughs> so. <Yes. laughs> <laughs> Matt, uh, Margaret also enjoyed learning new languages and was fluent in English, okay. French, German, Italian, Russian, and could speak, was conversational in Gaelic, which was her parents' native language. Whoa. Isn't that nuts? That is crazy. I mean... It's also testament to what you can do when you have free Money time. And time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But it, you still have to learn it, right? You There's still plenty have to learn of rich it. kids who barely speak English. And the you know? thing about learning a language too is I feel like a lot of times it doesn't serve you, especially if your native language is English. You right. really do it so that like for your own personal betterment, but not so that like I'm gonna speak French to like court this man. Right. You know, like that's you learn she the just piano forte. To learn it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so in 1909, however, the Browns quietly signed a separation agreement. What? Yeah. Um, because... Being away from their comforts of home and traveling for a whole year didn't fix their marriage. <laughs> no. <laughs> and traveling at all, but especially internationally, test any bounds. It's less about the relationship and more your two personality types. And you're also stuck together all the time. Yeah. And I learned a lot of things about Grant. Anyway. <laughs> she just had a lot of time where she wasn't sleeping, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's real. Uh, so they signed a separation agreement, but because they were both Catholic, they never legally divorced. Nice. 
Yeah, in the agreement, though, uh, apparently it was, like, relatively amicable. JJ mm. still wanted to take care of uh, Margaret. Aww. And so in the agreement, she gets the house. Uh, she also gets a cash settlement as well as $700 a month as an allowance, which will allow her to continue her travels and philanthropic efforts. That's about $20,000 today. <laughs> okay, so she's kind of comfortable. Okay. Yeah. All right, we'll go for her. We'll go yeah. For her. <laughs> That's, like, what, $240,000 when you make it sound like that, okay, maybe not. I mean, She's so nice. really comfortable. And doesn't have any kind of payments to make or anything. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to skip a lot of... JJ ends up dying in 1922. Oh, okay. That's skipping way ahead. Right. And now we're back. Uh, <laughs> and what's the year that we're back to? 1912. <laughs> oh, interesting. So you just... Okay, we're just going to tie up JJ real quick. He dies. Anyways, okay. So... <laughs> <Is anything? laughs> anyway, like, we're not going to talk about him again. That's how he ends. He, anyway. has, he has essentially no ending. Yeah, I don't... I didn't deep dive into okay. that. That felt pointless. I don't know. I wanted to talk about Margaret Brown. <laughs> so anyway, Margaret goes on a trip to Egypt, Rome, and Paris with her daughter, Helen, and their friends, the Astors. They're a couple. Right. And so she decides to return home ASAP. And so she books passage on the first available ship to the U.S. What ship was that? The RMS Titanic. And she boards off of the coast of France. Yes, she does. I'm not trying to say any, I mean, I, no, that's it. I could talk for hours, but yes, she yeah. gets on board. Yes. Um, so she gets on board the, quote, practically unsinkable Titanic. Correct. And since it was so last minute, no one knows that she's on the Titanic back home. Oh. And so, like, it's not like the Titanic goes down and Louise Sneed Hill is like, oh, my God, my nemesis is dead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's not like that. Uh, it's like basically Helen um, knows. She's on board with her friend, the Astors, though. I never confirmed that. That they were friends? I, well, the Astors are her friends. I never confirmed that they were on the Titanic. There are many, like, stories about them being on the Titanic, yeah. but I didn't go through that because a lot oh. of the stories have been exaggerated. The Astors are 100% okay, on cool. the Titanic. They die on the Titanic. Oh, cool. Yeah. Not cool, but, like... Sorry. That just, wasn't a deep dive I went I'm not into. trying to be like... <laughs> but I was like, I know this. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, okay. it shakes up a lot of stuff because, obviously, Astor... Like the male Aster mm-hmm. had like a bright future of like money and politics yeah, ahead of him. Yeah, yeah. One of, yeah I, I'm going to back it up. Sorry. I, I, I can, don't talk about the I Astors I can feel at all. myself swan diving into <laughs> Titanic knowledge. And so I'm just going to kind of pull it back. So I'll, she's I'll on this boat. I'll give you a chance. She's I'll give you a chance. Boat. How fun. Um, so late on April 14th, 1912, gasp, the Titanic strikes an iceberg. <laughs> You had to do it in the transatlantic accent if you would say gasp. <laughs> Late on a- yes! April 14th, 1912, gasp, the Titanic strikes an iceberg. You know we're not laughing at the tragedy. We are laughing at the voice. I'm telling you, if you're sad, right now say anything in a transatlantic <laughs> accent. It will give you a modicum of serotonin. Um... So this is a quote from Molly Brown. She says, I stretched on the brass bed at the side of which was a lamp so completely absorbed in my reading. I gave little thought to the crash that struck at my window overhead and threw me to the floor. <laughs> so she's like on she? the floor. She's like, well, what happens next? What is she reading? Fourth wing? What's <laughs> going on? Probably. Probably. <laughs> yes. Um, would you like to talk about what Molly Brown does in the sinking of the Titanic? I mean lives yeah. is there more i'm supposed to offer to that you don't know 
I mean, I have some ideas, but I think I'm afraid to say anything because some of the ideas I have, I think, are like just rumors and mm. falsehoods, and it's hard to know what was real and what was like okay. movie magic. It's, so, does she does she bring whiskey onto uh, any of the lifeboats? Is that one of the things you're going to say? No. Okay. Not that I know of. Does she put on one of her life jackets first as like a good model for the rest of the first class passengers? I believe she does, but that comes after comes before a lot of the stuff that I'm going to. Okay, then yeah, yeah. no, I've, I don't think at least. Okay. So she spends a great deal of time getting other passengers onto lifeboats, oh. namely second class and steerage passengers onto lifeboats. I did not know that. Yes. She was literally the only way they got her onto a boat was because a crew member picked her up and put her onto the boat. Whoa. Because she was not about to leave before some of these people did. Uh, She was put on lifeboat number six. Lifeboat number six was equipped for 65 passengers um, but left the sinking Titanic with only 21 women, two men, and one 12-year-old boy. Also, number six doesn't mean it was the sixth Mm-mm. one to launch. No. It was just it was, it was numbered just number. number six. Yeah. yeah. Um, Margaret took the oars and started handing them out to female passengers who weren't supposed or expected to row. row. Right. Yeah, and uh, like plays kind of example of like getting everyone to row. And she demands the crew on the lifeboat go back to continue evacuating people. Whoa. Yeah, because she recognizes that there's still plenty of room on this right. lifeboat. It's also the rowing is also to help keep uh, the women warm until help comes because it's right. cold as fuck. I mean, Jack dies, so um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a quartermaster who is on the lifeboat. He refuses to go turn back to the Titanic, fearing that the lifeboat will be pulled under with the sinking ship uh, until she threatens to throw him overboard. And then they eventually return and rescue more survivors. Nice. For reals? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a deleted scene from the Titanic depicting a version of this, but in that version, the lifeboat does not turn around and right. go back. Um, at 4.30 a.m., Margaret sees the lights of the Carpathia, which is the first ship to answer the distre- distress call of the Titanic, and also, I believe, the only ship. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, so okay, cool. um, the wireless system that they were using at the time mm-hmm. isn't really meant for SOS calls. It is mainly used oh. to receive business calls f- between London and New York. Jesus. Uh, and also, like, it was a great way to send, like, personal messages mm-hmm. to people on the boats. But it wasn't, like, an official, like, life system or whatever. Mm. So the Titanic is sending out these wireless signals. But mm. it's no not even really it's not an expectation that your boat has a 24-7 wireless person. The Carpathia does I think in part because their wireless person is basically a huge hobbyist mm. of the wireless and they hear it and then the story of what the Carpathia does when they get the call is actually really harrowing if I'll have some of these numbers might be off a little bit but basically she was meant to go like 17 18 knots and the crew in responding to the rescue managed to push her to 21 knots wow. and almost destroy their boilers trying to get there fast and is doing that through the same ice field that, that the, the Titanic, Titanic went through and so yeah. they have all the crew at the front of the ship like trying to spot icebergs. icebergs and stuff. Meanwhile, all the crew are getting like cots and hot water running and like they're setting oh, up everything nice. to like, yeah, the entire ship basically wakes up to try to help as quickly and urgently as possible. Mm-hmm. And I have to remember what will happen later. I think the Carpathia sinks during World War One. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, oh. at that point, I think it's like oh, a, yeah. a weapons distri- oh, like, distribution yeah, that, ship. I mean, it's World War um, but that's, Yeah, exactly. That's uh, one Damn. of its legacies. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, what they do on the Carpathia is in its own small way a really interesting part of that story, too. What Molly does, Margaret does on the Carpathia, also fucking crazy. Really? Yes. So... 
Uh, she spends her time on the Carpathia advocating for the poorer survivors to make sure that they get the medical attention mm. that they need, as well as she personally is helping and encouraging other people to pass out blankets, food, and supplies to these people. Many of the women who were there were sleeping on the dining room, sleeping on the floor in the dining room in the corridors. Using the many languages, she's able to console other survivors, many of which who don't speak a lot of English. Oh. Yeah, and she realizes that many survivors, namely the women, lost everything, like hu husbands, children, clothes, money, etc., and she and they need financial support. So in response to this, it takes three days for the Carpathia to reach New York, but before it docks in New York, she has raised $10,000, wow. which is over $310,000 today for the survivors of the Titanic. Is that just on the boat, or is she messaging back to New York, like I'm assuming it's on networks. the boat, okay. like convincing the other wealthy people to donate to these people, okay. yeah. So she's raised all of that money in those three days um, before really news of the Titanic sinking has like, I don't know, made, made sure. it big, I guess. Um, it's reported that in an interview after she deboards the Carpathia that she's quoted saying, typical brown luck, I'm unsinkable. It's unclear if this is true or not, mm. or if it was made up by Polly Pry, who is a Denver gossip columnist who often reported on Louise and her Sacred 36. Okay. Who also has some weird, I don't know, hatred of Margaret <sighs> Brown because of Louise, whatever. He's just like a self-serving to his head queen. I think she. Louise. Yeah. Oh, oh Polly. Right, Polly. Right. Yeah, yep, Polly. Yep, yep, yep. Um, in a letter back to her daughter, Helen, she writes uh, her telling that she is, she's well after, quote, being brined, salted, and pickled in oh. mid-ocean. <laughs> What's well, one way to describe it? Yeah. She also tells her daughter that the other survivors were petitioning Congress to give her a medal and joked, quote, I must call a specialist to examine my head. It is due to the title of heroine of the Titanic. <laughs> in the years to follow, she would end up, um, she would end up helping to put the Titanic memorial up in Washington, D.C., on her return to Denver, guess what? Louise Sneed Hill suddenly loves her. Oh, really? Yeah, BFFs. I'm not sure if she ever joins Welcome. the Welcome, we found a fifth table or a tenth table for uh, my ballroom. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So in 1914, she's kind of called back to Denver. I think she was probably already there, but in Ludlow, Colorado, miners are on strike against the Rockefeller conglomerate. It's one of the most violent labor conflicts in American history. On April 20th, 1914, a battle breaks out between miners and private guards. 20 people are killed, including women and children. Local women write to Maggie pleading for her help because oh, she's wow. known to have stand, stood up for uh, miners' rights. And so she's, she goes there. She struggles to remain neutral. She doesn't totally agree with the radicals because they're calling for the governor to resign. But she also pushes back against the Rockefellers. And she takes a, a page out of Louise's book by leveraging media. And so she pushes him, primarily harnessing the power of negative media attention by speaking out about miners' rights and naming Rockefeller directly. And the pressure leads Rockefeller to make concessions and ultimately- Whoa, strike it, ends. Yeah, the strike ends. And so she comes back to Denver. She ends up renting out her mansion and spending most of her time in Newport, Rhode Island. Hmm. And when she was in Denver, there is a, a hotel here called the Brown Palace. Yes, there is. And it's a common urban legend that the Brown Palace is named after the unsinkable Molly Brown. 
It is in fact not. Right. I believe it's named after the architect <laughs> or the person who owns it. It's also it. on the outside, pretty brown. Like it's, it's very a nice brown. stone, it but a it's brown a brown palace. It's a brown triangle. Yeah, it's, I believe it's made out of sandstone, so it's technically like a dark, dark red, yeah. but it's, it's brown. It's a brown triangle that on the first floor has an elegant piano in, the, ven- in the middle. And then in one of the corners, a nautical themed bar. Yes. <laughs> I love it there. <laughs> Friday and Saturday nights, they do jazz. Casey and I went on a date night a couple weeks ago, and it was great. Your guys' life is so sophisticated sometimes. <laughs> they had a charcuterie board, and it's like a nice place. I was at expecting. At the nautical bar? No, at the in the main oh, area okay. where they do jazz. <laughs> okay. Um, but they had this like charcuterie board, and we were like, yeah, let's get that. And I expected it to be like a tiny charcuterie sure. board. Sure. Massive. Oh, it was so it was so worth it. Hot tips and tricks here yeah, for think, your next Denver trip. I think it was like twenty bucks, but it was like a lot of cheese and wow. meats. It was, for you guys. I was like, damn, okay. Um, so when she comes back from uh, the Titanic sinking, this was probably before the miner strike in Ludlow. Uh, she stays at the Brown Palace for two weeks. Uh, she took vocal lessons there and from someone who heard the vocal lessons, quote, the caterwauling could be heard throughout the eight stories of the center atrium. <laughs> oh, God. She's as a hobbyist. She's a hobbyist. And she was also known to be the most enthusiastic dancer at the Casanova room during parties, which I love. She's um, had a good soul. Nice lady. She's just so wholesome. Lived the life. Just she lived did a great it all. Life, yeah. Margaret spent a good deal of time in Newport, Rhode Island, which is like the epitome of uh, American aristocracy. I'm going to keep saying it until I like get it through my head. (laughs) Aristocracy. Uh, (laughs) But Newport, Rhode Island, if you've ever been there, um, some of my family lives close there and they have, uh, what is it? It's like Newport mansions. Yeah. There's like a whole. Well, they would say, I have a little cottage up in Newport, but they're huge. They're huge. And like most of them are now museums and it's, it's bananas. Like they're huge. One of the original Gatsby films was filmed at one of those mansions. Um, so Newport was the first American town to have a golf course, tennis club, and the regular use of cars. <laughs> it was also female-dominated, as mm. the men spent most of their time in New York City. Making doing, all that money and business. Making all their money. Good for them. I yeah. mean, the women, not the men. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm not cheering for that. Yeah. <laughs> so Margaret, in terms of her wealth, was a small fish in Newport, but she's quickly accepted by Newport leaders because she has kind of all this fame back in Sure. Here, right? Namely... Alva Vanderbilt Belmont. Oh shit! Which, by the way, that is a that is Vanderbilt two names. Belmont. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there are two universities. Excuse me. You colleges. might know. You might know me. I'm Mrs. Gold Diamond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally. Uh, I read that name and I was like, "What?" <laughs> Cost you five dollars just to read it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. She, however, is the president of the National Women's Suffrage Association. Hell yes. Yeah. Love her. I was prepared to hate her. Love her. I hate money in politics unless it's money for my politics. Then I unless love money in politics. Unless it's a woman advocating for my politics. <laughs> exactly. Um, together, uh, so Alva and Margaret become friends, and together they get involved with the National Women's Trade Union League, which included both upper and working class women, which kind of made it unique in its time. And they advocated for minimum wage and an eight-hour workday, which, mm. like, I get today. Hate it. Uh, <laughs> I get You're too compromising. Like, Should have done six, maybe seven. <laughs> Five. Four days. <laughs> um, uh, Margaret also worked with Alice Paul, who led the radical yes. side of the Women's Party. Absolutely. Yeah, and pushed for national suffrage, the national suffrage amendment. Yes. 
Do you have anything to say? Oh, I mean, uh, there's a great movie about Alice Paul mm-hmm. um, and the force feeding that she went yeah. through. Alice Paul's organization made the brave decision to picket, actually, the Wilson administration yeah. during World War One, um, which, you know, World War One's happening. America's at war. You're not supposed to be critical of the president. And her and her suffragettes picketed outside of the White House every day and, like, were arrested for it in... Like support of uh, women's suffrage. I hope and they helped. did the turkey trot. Because <laughs> he would have hated it. He would have hated it. Do you know what he also hated? Huh. Minorities. Huge racist. Love so that uh, even more to Alice Paul's legacy yeah. that she stuck a finger in Hell his eye. Oh, yeah. Uh, so July 1914, Margaret works with Alva to organize the Conference of Great Women. At the conference, <laughs> uh, Maggie spoke to the plight of Colorado miners and rallied for a, quote, rights for all movement countering the greed of big businesses. Hmm. Uh, so this is something I did not know. In 1914, Margaret ran for political office oh. as a U.S. Senator of Colorado two years before women got the right to Hell vote. Hell yeah. <laughs> well, hold on. Is that in the country or in Colorado? Because Western states were granting the right to vote before the nation uh, granted it. I don't know. She, a U.S. Senator for Colorado. Um, so, like, nationally. There was a U.S. Yeah. Senator from... Oh, God. The curse of my history education. <laughs> there was a U.S. Senator from Montana who mm-hmm. was elected to the U.S. Senate before women nationally had the right to vote, oh, nice. but Western states allowed it, and she was one of the senators that voted against uh, the authorization of the U.S. entering World War One. She was a huge pacifist. Love that. And then she, like, retired. Like, that's not good for her career, but then she, like, kind of lives this other life. I forget what exact circumstances happen, um, but I think her husband or someone dies mm-hmm. and she gets appointed to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1940. Wow. And then when Pearl Harbor happens, she is the lone representative in either chamber to vote against the U.S. going into World, World War II. And she was like, I'm one of the few people in here who was here when this first vote went, and someone wow. needs to speak out against the death of all these people, and I'm going to vote against it. And she almost didn't even make it out of the building. Like, they almost tore her apart. Um, but she never once regretted it, and she never backed down. Awesome. The curse of my history education. Oh, yeah, I actually know a lot about progressive politics first half of the what? 20th century. No. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So... Uh, both the Colorado newspapers and the New York Times favored Margaret winning um, the U.S. senator office, but um, I'm not sure what came first. She left or World War One broke out and she decided to change her focus. Oh. One way or another, she did not get the Senate seat. That's um, too bad. Yeah, but Margaret changed her focus to relief efforts for World War One. She traveled to France to work for the American Committee for, Devastate, for Devastated France. When she left New York to do this, a reporter noted, quote, if I were requested to personify perpetual activity, I believe I'd name <laughs> Mrs. J.J. Brown, the Newport social figure, suffragette, and suffragist, and patriot. Patriot. Jesus, that was a lot of words that I didn't get right. Um, for this, she ended up earning the French Legion of Honor for her activities. Whoa. Yeah. In World War One, Americans began to prioritize art, or after World War One, sorry, Americans began to prioritize art, music, and theater to a greater degree. Uh, women's suffrage passed in 1920. Remember, J.J. dies in 1922. Um, Margaret begins exploring her interest in performance and theater. She performs um, some, several iconic roles um, throughout Paris and New York. She ends up dying on October 26th, 1932, in her sleep at the Barbizon Hotel in New York City. Hmm. How old is she? Do you know? Is it? Safe? Oh, I believe it was like sixty something. It wasn't that old. Okay. Uh, Louise Sneed Hill, 
also has an oh, ending. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Completely forgot about her. <laughs> in after 1947, so this is well after Molly has passed. Right. Um, she has suffered a stroke, and also it's hard to maintain the mansion. It's hard to find help for the mansion. This is around World War II time. Sure. Um, so she moves to the Skyline Apartments, also at the Brown Palace, <laughs> and uh, her mansion was sold to the Jewish Town Club. And mm. I believe that statue she unveiled every spring was sold. Uh, in an effort to gain money to restore the mansion. <laughs> but what about Hysterical. the portrait of her husband and I her, want mistress? To know. <laughs> her mistress? I hope they're in an attic somewhere staring at each other <laughs> from across the way. I don't know why that's just so funny to me. They seem pretty chill with each other, so I, I think so it's, like, I don't think it's like a, it's like a oh, what, you, what else is there to talk about? <laughs> I was sex with my wife last night. <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. We're <laughs> <laughs> um, so deep into it oh now. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, Louise Needhill ends up dying of pneumonia in 1955 at 92 years old with an estate of $5 million okay. in 1955. So a lot of money. Anyway. Wait, $5 million. In 1955, so that's not adjusted for inflation. That's not adjusted for inflation. So it's like an unfathomable... I didn't even want to put it into the inflation calculator. I feel like they sold the statue, sure, to help with mansion restoration, but also because she just didn't want to bring it with her. It didn't sound like money (laughs) was super tight. She was like, oh, Jesus, I can't put this in my apartment. She could (laughs) renovate Casa Bonita with that much money. (laughs) That's hysterical. Um, So anyway... The legacy of Margaret Brown, like I mentioned, the Brown Palace is not named after Molly Brown, although she did stay there for two weeks following the sinking of the Titanic. She loved animals a lot, and so she actually created the Denver Dumb Friends League, which is still around today. It's one of Denver's humane societies, um, and I got my first dog from there. Yeah, I have a lot of friends who've gotten their pets from the Denver Dumb Friends. It's amazing. There's a Broadway musical and movie adaptation inspired by Brown's life and was released in 1960, starring Debbie Reynolds, who was nominated oh. for an Oscar for her role. This movie was credited for being the reason that Margaret Brown's house in Denver was ended up getting restored and is now the museum that it is today. Molly Brown was then played by Kathy Bates in 1997's yeah. The Titanic. Uh <laughs> This is a quote from an article I read about this. Uh, Quote, if you thought seeing the 1997 film Titanic a couple times taught you everything you needed to know about Molly Brown, well, think again. The real story of Titanic's Molly Brown is nothing like what you've seen in the movies. True. Although she is kind of... And so much more interesting. So much more. Like, she's interesting in the movies. Like, you, you hear her talk and you're like, okay, I'd be right. your friend. I'd get a drink with you. But then right. you l- l- listen to all of this and you're like, okay. <laughs> um... Margaret Brown is also played by Cloris Leachman in a 1979 movie, so before the Titanic. Um, that movie is called SOS Titanic. The movie follows several notable passengers, Molly Brown, the Astors, and Lawrence Beasley, and um, like some other crew members and stuff. Um, many people have elaborated and exaggerated her hijinks. Uh, Caroline Bancroft wrote The Unsinkable Mrs. Brown as, quote, an article for a romance magazine that turned into a best-selling tourist booklet. This book, however, was kind of advertised as a biography, (laughs) and it was not. (laughs) It's described as, quote, the rollicking story of the Leadville waitress, she wasn't a waitress, Hmm. who reached the top of Newport society and a permanent place in American lore as a heroine of the Titanic disaster. 
I mean, some of those details are no, correct. Some of those, right? <laughs> there is, however, no evidence that Margaret Brown ever was aware of the nickname Unsinkable Molly, Molly Brown. Brown. Yeah. Uh, Gene Fowler is also uh, known. He's uh, a journalist who is known for putting his own spin on things and maybe the inventor of fake news, <laughs> which was like basically a direct quote from this article that I okay. read. <laughs> um, and he printed a story that took Bancroft's story and further exaggerated it. Uh, this is a quote from the story. Um, born in the eye of a cyclone, in a shack of scantlings and tin cans, and her impoverished father was a drunkard. She couldn't read or write and grew up to become a high-spirited bossomy girl. B-O-S-O-M-E-Y. I don't know. Uh, who hightailed it to Leadville to marry a rich man. I mean... Again, like, kind of true. Like, she did go to Leadville. And, like, one of her goals was to marry a rich man, then decided that wasn't her goal when she found love. Was born in a cyclone in a shack of uh, scantlings and tin cans. There's also I nothing... Mean, even I was nicer in my description of Hannibal. Yeah, like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> um, it is thought that this interpretation was his way of getting back at Margaret Brown for not giving him an exclusive on mm. her Titanic experience. Men will literally ruin a woman's career before they go to therapy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and before I get too carried away, my sources were Colorado Encyclopedia, um, a podcast called The Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery, which is actually based in Denver. Oh, cool. Um, Wikiwand, Molly Br- the Molly Brown Museum, the Strange Colorado Podcast, which talks a lot about like her hauntings too, which is cool. Um, Bustle.com. And the Denver Library and Hotel Colorado. Nice. Yeah. Can I share a quick Titanic Molly Brown story? Yeah. So uh, I love sharing this story at parties. And my dear (laughs) friends have definitely heard of this before. So Titanic comes out in 1997, Mm -hmm. which means it's right. Like that's when the movie comes out. So, you know, the two part VHS box set is available in like 1998, 1999. Mm -hmm. So I'm like five, six years old, kind of going on seven, maybe like in those six to eight year old Mm -hmm. range when we're watching, when I'm watching Titanic, like for the first time. Yeah. And my parents were definitely the parents that made my siblings and I leave the room if there was a kissing scene in the movie, and then they would call us back when we could, like, watch it again. Um, but <laughs> oh, no. one time, we're at a big family reunion, and all of us kids are locked in the basement, where we should be. <laughs> and um, my cousins, my older cousins, I'll have to keep them nameless, but my older cousins are like, we brought Titanic if you want to watch it. And everyone's like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, of course. Yeah, sure. I love history. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so we watched Titanic. And of course, that infamous paint me like one of your French girl scenes comes on. Oh, no, not that. The like the topless scene. Mm. Yeah, the naked topless scene. And everyone's like, oh, boys. Oh, don't look. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. I don't want to see this. Gross. And that's when I should have known. <laughs> I was gay. I know that. But then there's like a second part to this. My favorite character, my favorite character in the Titanic was Kathy Bates, Mm -hmm. which is maybe even gayer than not wanting to see the boobs. That really is. (laughs) It was such a... 
early symptom yeah. of what I would live with for the rest of it. I mean, obviously, I love who I am, but it was like such an early flare-up of the rainbow, you know, personality it's I was cultivating. Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates. Yeah. I don't want to see the boobs. Honestly, more Kathy Bates. More Kathy That's Bates. what I want. Uh, this is a cover of the book about Louise Sneed Hill, the okay. Queen of Denver. That's her uppity. That's her in the mansion. Is that her ballroom? Uh, I believe... That might be Maybe. a picture of the sacred thirty six and like their husbands. I'm okay. not sure. Um, that's the the mansion. It's still Is that standing mansion still today. Standing, yeah, that I believe way. it's an office building now, oh, kind of. Nice. Um, some people have lived there. When we were on the ghost tour, the guy said that uh, he's seen it when it's been like a residence as well. Oh, but cool. I think it now it might be a lawyer's office or something like that. Um, this is uh, Molly Brown yeah. with the captain of the Carpathia. That is a trophy. big dramatic hat, though. Right? I love it. There's a lot of And it just makes Kathy Bates' hat in so the Titanic. So modest. Yeah, it looked modest. Like, she is wearing a mat. It's, like, probably a foot out yes. from her, her face with giant feathers. And I have a screen grab of Kathy Bates from the movie, and it's, like, it's a modest sun hat. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's an appropriate bridesmaids hat from yeah. the 90s, yeah, essentially. Exactly. Yeah, Mm-hmm. And 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 Margaret Brown could absolutely take off if a wind <laughs> came yeah. around. She's like Dumbo. Because hats there, man. that big have to be pinned to your hair. A hundred percent. It's just attached. And that's why. Did you know that's why when the national anthem gets sung, that's why uh, like, women don't have to take their hats women off. Women aren't supposed to have to take their hats off because they used to be pinned in. Yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't know that, but that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, that was good. Do we have to still think of a name for the episode though? I was gonna call it the like. In parentheses, unsinkable. Nice. We can come up with something. I was circling around something similar. Okay, cool. We can call it that. Nice. Okay. Well, uh, thanks, y'all. Tune in next week. I'm so excited to share my story, which happens in about two minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye.